0: Happy Sabbath. Um, before we get into the sermon this morning, uh, I'm just going to expand a little bit on one of the um, announcements that we had earlier today. So, um, as you guys know, okay, um, like just a disclaimer, we are not taking these precautions because we think that we're going to get sick and die, okay? Um, it's just because. We do have um, many like elderly <laughs> that are also a part of our community. We have people who they could be in a more vulnerable position. And so we just want to be wise as a faith community and take precautions. So some of these precautions. Okay, wash your hands for more than 20 seconds. Okay, Not just like, Mom, I washed my hands. Like 20 seconds. Um, count to 20 or I heard you can sing happy birthday twice. If you need to cough or sneeze, whether it's during the service or you're hanging out with your friends and eating, please do that into your elbow. Um, If you feel or start to show any symptoms of sickness, okay, that's very aggressive. Please do not, okay. Um, We're not saying please don't come to church. Well, we are, but (laughs) what we're asking, we're saying, instead of coming to this physical church, please join us on our live stream on our YouTube channel. (laughs) And if you have come into contact recently with anyone who has visited Korea, China, Italy, um, just, you know, use wisdom and also join us in worship through our live stream. Um, Be responsible, self-quarantine, and Um, this, it's not on here, but this is also a rule, and I want to apologize to Jane Kim, because this morning, Jane, she hugged me, and I froze, because we had discussed that another rule is no shaking hands, and no hugging and greeting for the time being. So, when Jane hugged me, I was just thinking, this is breaking the rules. So, um, Jane, I'm sorry for not hugging you back, but um, if you need to, like, greet someone, um, if you ask Michael Min, he'll show you like a cool like foot thing that you can do. Okay, we just love you guys. We want everyone to be healthy and well. And so we ask for your cooperation with these things. All right, now let's get into the word. Um, There's a story about a pastor in a rural farming community. And during one visit to a church member's farm, they were gazing over the field where his two milk cows were grazing. And the pastor asked his farmer, one of his dear friends, an elder, faithful elder at his church, he said, Abe, if you had 100 horses, would you give me 50? And Abe's like, pastor, of course, of course I would. And the pastor's like, Abe, if you had 100 chickens, would you give me 50? And Abe is like, yes, I would give you 50 chickens. Pastor's like, okay, wow. If you had two cows, would you give me one? And Abe says, now cut that out, pastor. You know I only have two cows. (laughs) Generosity as an idea sounds great. We love the idea of being generous, but in practice, it does not seem to come as naturally. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, this is your time now to do whatever you want to do. Will you help us to open our hearts and our minds and our ears to you? Will you, um, any distractions that we have, any misconceptions or misunderstandings we have about who our Father is, um, please help us to clear those things so that we may receive in an open um, posture. Um, Father, hide me in the shadow of the cross and do whatever you want to do right now. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are on week eight of our Rooted series, and our topic this morning is, how does God view money? So if you are here at our church for the first time today, congratulations. Um, Make sure you come back next week. Uh, Pastors don't like talking about money, and I know you guys know this because every single time a pastor preaches about money, they tell you how much they don't want to be preaching about money. Is it my favorite topic? Not really. But I actually do like preaching about it because at the end of the day, I want to be like Jesus and I want our faith community to be like Jesus too. And if Jesus thought it was important, then I think we should think it's important too. And the reality is Jesus talked about money a lot, like a lot, a lot. Um, uh, It actually, scripture, well, actually I'll tell you that later. Um, And the reason he talked about money a lot is because what we do with our money reveals what is important to us. Um, The thing is, nowhere in the Bible does it expressively say that money is an idol. Jesus actually says something way more profound. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he may not be saying that money is an idol, but what he's saying is money reveals your idols. What you spend your money on actually reveals like, what things are most important to you right? in both big and small ways. So let me ask you something. If you opened up your bank app on your phone right now, if you took a look at your, this past month's credit card statement or your budget from this past month, what would your spending habits reveal about what's most important in your life? where does the majority of your money go on a weekly, monthly basis? Eating out? That's me. Um, Who does all the money that you spend, who does that money serve? Here's another thing Jesus says about money. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You've heard this before. And the Greek word for blessed can also be translated into happy. So Jesus is saying there is more happiness in giving than in receiving, which seems like, okay, Jesus, like you want us to be into giving. But Jesus, as you know, was wildly ahead of his times, and studies now show that he was completely right. Um, Sociologists Christian Smith and Hillary Davidson wrote a book called The Paradox of Generosity, and based on their studies and research on this topic, they summarized the data and concluded that generous people are happier healthier, they live longer, they have lower levels of depression and anxiety, they're more interested in personal growth, and they have better relationships. Okay? Okay, sounds good. Here's another direct quote from that book. It says, people rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result not of spending money on one's, not spending more on oneself, but rather of giving money away to others. The data examined here shows this is not, this to be not simply a nice idea, but a social scientific fact. Okay, so money and happiness, there is a correlation, but not because the more money you have, the more happier you are, but the more you generosity that you practice, that really does result in happiness in your life. So if you're feeling sad today, you know what you got to do. In case you needed a a reminder or no one's ever told you this directly before, Jesus wants you to be happy. Okay? Jesus wants you to be happy. Jesus is invested in your happiness. Yes, because he loves you, but also because How happy we are, how happy we become, is also very deeply tied to how loving we become. And that's really where Jesus wants to lead us in this spiritual journey. He wants us to love like he does. And maybe that's why he has so much to say about money. Scholars estimate that 25% of Jesus' teachings are about money on some level. 25%. Can you imagine if every fourth sermon at Loma Linda Korean was about money? Our church would be way smaller or way bigger. Um, So I find it particularly interesting how much time Jesus spent preaching about money, talking about money. He wasn't a rabbi of a specific synagogue. He didn't need to raise a specific amount of money for the yearly synagogue budget so that He could pay for the synagogue's campus ministry rabbi, right? He's not raising money to expand the temple because there aren't enough classrooms and because the temple is super full every Sabbath. He's not even collecting funds for the poor the way that Paul was doing throughout the New Testament. He's just interested in the human heart. He is interested in your heart. And he's interested in freedom and love and life with God. And it seems like, through the lens of Christ, that money is about so much more than just money. Let's take a look at one of his many teachings on money. Um, Turn with me now, if you have your Bible apps, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 11, starting from verse 33. Luke 11, verse 33. Jesus says this, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Okay, remember Jesus is sharing this illustration way before electricity was a thing. So a lamp back in the day was made by adding oil to a ceramic pot, and that was a very expensive thing to light. Meaning nobody would ever do this. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Now, this is a metaphor, and this is a metaphor that Jesus likes. You might recognize it from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount as well. Um, He continues, and he breaks the metaphor down. Verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. Okay, as we read this in the year 2020, this seems very, like, abstract. Like, okay, so healthy eyes is good. Okay, eat a lot of carrots, like, be good friends with Dr. Mike Rouser. Like, what are you saying, Jesus? But to a first-century Jew who would be hearing this, a healthy eye or an unhealthy eye was a figure of speech. For those of you who have your Bibles open or have your Bible apps Open. In the NIV translation, you'll see two little footnotes in your Bible on the word healthy and the word unhealthy. And what does it say for the word healthy? It says, the Greek for healthy here implies what? Generous. Yes. And then for the word unhealthy, it implies stingy. Yes. This was a figure of speech. It was talking about how there were two different ways of seeing the world, two different ways of viewing reality. And we still hold true to these different ways of looking at the world now. Nowadays, we call them an abundance mentality and a scarcity mentality. Two very different ways of seeing not just life, but money as well. If you have an abundance mentality, you look out at the world and you see a world that's like full, like milk and honey, God is generous, there's plenty to go around for everyone, We see God as a generous host, and everything is a gift from him. As a result, you live with gratitude towards God and generosity towards others, specifically for those in need. Your eyes are healthy, generous in the way that you view the world. But if you have a scarcity mentality, you look out into the world and you see a world that is lacking. There's overpopulation, the future is bleak, There's not enough to go around. Civilization is in a fierce battle over scarce resources. The world is a giant game of settlers of Catan, and you are losing. And you need to fight to get what's yours. And as a result, you're often blind to those who are in need. And oftentimes, instead of seeing the things you have as a gift, you see what you don't have, but what you still want. No, 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 but I I need that. And I want that. And I really need that, and and also that. And you are consumed, in the end, by greed. If this is the kind of heart that you or I have, a first-century Jewish person might say, you have an unhealthy eye. You have an unhealthy, stingy way of viewing the world. Which is why Jesus goes on to say, in verse 35, See to it, then, that the light within you is not darkness. This is really important. The way that you see the world, the way that you see money, this impacts who you become. This impacts how you become. Verse 36, Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. What Jesus is saying is, if you get your relationship to money right— If you understand generosity the way I understand generosity and you see the world the way I see the world and you understand God the way I understand God, the other things, they will fall into place. Maybe this still feels a little bit abstract, which is why Luke continues on to illustrate this teaching into practical action. Verse 37, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and he reclined at the table. Okay, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but in the New Testament, um, Jesus never refuses a free meal from a rich person, okay? Um, I also practice this. Uh, But but the Pharisee, it says, the Pharisee who invites him, was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Okay, with the announcement that I started off with, um, I just need to take a moment, pause, and emphasize this is not about hygiene, okay? Verse 38, when the Pharisee was surprised that Jesus did not wash before the meal, this is not about hygiene. Um, with all the precautions we're taking with coronavirus, like, listen guys, and I'm not just picking on this side of the room, okay? I mean everyone, but, but, um, this is not a time to be like, mom, Jesus didn't wash his hands before he ate, so I don't need to either, okay? Okay? Jesus didn't need to worry about coronavirus and the vulnerable people in the community because he would just heal them all. And you can't do that, so just wash your hands (laughs) for 20 seconds. This story is not about hygiene. Um, In the first century, an elaborate ceremony had developed in the Pharisaical culture that dictated the exact ways that you needed to wash your hands before a meal. It dictated from which pitcher you would wash with, what kind of water, the angle which direction you would allow the water to flow off your hands. Seriously. And I know this sounds really over the top, but Pharisaical culture and this hand-washing tradition in particular, it was an attempt to apply the Levitical code, which was for the priests, to just everyone in Israel. But we see in story after story that for Jesus, he paid very little attention to the religious traditions of his day a lot of these traditions he would actually refer to as a heavy burden. Jesus's priority wasn't which direction the water streams off his hand when he washes his hands before the meal. Verse 39 says, then the Lord said to him, the host, right, the guy that invited him for dinner, now then you Pharisees Oh, he says, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Okay, so the Pharisees were pretty well known for their greediness. Um, Luke writes a few chapters later that the Pharisees, quote, loved money. He says, you foolish people. He's not just saying, like, you dum-dums. Like, you're not, like, you know, like, it's not like a term of, like, it's kind of endearment. What he's saying is, you're foolish. You are not thinking. You don't get it. Did not the one who, make, who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. We see another metaphor from which Jesus um, illustrates this point for us. As many of you know, I try to be mindful of the trash that I produce and create. So I like do small things, like I create my own set of, ut- uh, I don't create, I carry my own set of utensils around. I try not to use single-use plastics. I do my best to not consume water in plastic bottles. I carry my glass cup around, or my self-cleaning water bottle. But now I'm going to share something very personal and embarrassing. Um, but you guys, honestly, you guys seem pretty into that, so. Okay. Mm. Um, And honestly, this is actually a public service announcement, so you're welcome. How many of you guys carry around your own water bottle? Okay, good job, guys, okay? Very proud of you. Okay, now, for those of you who carry around your own water bottle, you don't need to say this out loud, but answer in your head, how often, how regularly do you wash your water bottle? Honestly. You don't need to say it out loud, but I'm sure the true answer came to your mind right now. Do you know how often you're supposed to wash your water bottle? You're supposed to wash it at least once every day, and you know what you're really not supposed to do? You're not supposed to top it off. What I mean is, like, let's say you have like this much water left, and you're like, the day's over, you're about to go to sleep, you're like, kind of getting stuff ready to leave early the next morning, and then you're like, oh, well, I'm not gonna drink this water now, so you open the lid of your water bottle, and then you fill it back up again. And then you close it, and then you're like, all right, I'm set for tomorrow. That's called topping it off. Don't do that, okay? When you wash your water bottle, make sure you let it dry completely before you refill it, okay? And wash it more than just like, oh, when it starts to smell, okay? (laughs) Do you want to know why I know so much about washing water bottles? (laughs) Because about 10 months ago, I was much more relaxed about water bottle hygiene. And I would very often top off my glass jar. And then one day, I was in staff meeting and I was listening to Pastor Richard talk and I was drinking my water and I thought, oh, what's that pretty pink color inside my jar? Specifically on my straw. Do you know what it was? It was mold. It was pink mold, but it was still mold, and it was inside my straw. I know. (laughs) And that's when a friend gifted me a self-cleaning water bottle, and that's when I started washing my jar every day. Now imagine, I extend to you some water in my glass jar after the sermon, and you too notice a lovely pink color through the glass. And I'm like, have some water, you look thirsty. You would not be into that, okay? You'd be like, no, no, pastor, I've, And that's like, that's not even like ugly, like gross green mold. It's like pretty pink mold, but you still would not be down for that. And this is Jesus's illustration for people who are religious and have the focus on the external. I look right, I do the right things, I get to church on time, I have all the religious stuff down, but inside, in your heart, that part is unclean there's greed in there, and as a result, there's mold growing, and it's gross. And Jesus' solution to that, because Jesus always has, you know, like, Jesus is so awesome because there's a lot of people who complain, but then they have no solution. Jesus always has a solution, and his solution for us here is an invitation, which I love because Jesus is all about invitations, and he extends an invitation on how to change our heart. And maybe this is an invitation that you are interested in. Because a lot of us, if we are honest, we are like this. We look good on the outside. We have our act together. But in our heart, there's greed in there. There's selfishness in there. There's envy in there. A bunch of different kinds of mold growing. And it's gross. But his invitation is found in verse 41. It says... But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. If you move towards generosity in both your heart and in the practice in your life, just that alone will do wonders to clean out the interior of your soul. This is awesome. This is a solution. Verse 42, continuing on. Woe to you, Pharisees. And woe here, like woe is not actually like a, a, word, a word. Like woe is like a, an expression, an exclamation. It's like kind of like the opposite of wow. Like we're like, when we're in awe of something, we're like, wow. But woe is the, the, it's the opposite. It's like a sigh of like, oh, like you guys, you're missing it. Woe to you. Because you give God a tenth. And in Greek, this is a verb. It's a word that's translated tithe based on the Hebrew word that means 10%. So you give God your 10%. You tithe your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. Okay, so just a little bit of background information. Um, Jesus is referring here to Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30 where it says, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And what the Pharisees were doing here was reading this command from the Torah to tithe, but taking it to the extreme. So not just tithing what comes from their crops, but tithing mint, which if you've ever grown mint, it's like very little. And if like, it's like a teeny tiny herb, and rue, which is like, it's basically like a weed that it is edible, but they weren't like eating it that much. So they were tithing down to the very last sprout. Very, very thorough. But Jesus is saying, Yeah, you, okay, good. You gave me that last mint leaf, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You're missing the bigger picture of God's heart and his generosity and the poor and the way you view the world and the way you trust God. And what Jesus is referring back to here is what the prophet Micah says. He says, in Micah chapter 6, verse 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Remember in this culture, their livestock was like currency, so it's like, "Should I come before God with, with my money? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive, olive oil? Should I bring all my extravagances before God? Is that what God will like?" And the response is, "No, not really. What does the Lord? require of you what does the lord require of you he has shown you O mortal what is good what does the lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god meaning though the pharisees were practicing the most intense of tithing they were missing the point they were missing god's heart for the poor they were missing the justice, the compassion, the love. And Jesus says this. That? Sorry, can we go back to verse 42? Thank you. Jesus says this. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Jesus is saying, you tithe? That's good. Well done. I'm glad you're practicing that. But You're missing out on something. You're missing out on sharing my heart for the poor. You're missing out on sharing my compassion for those who are in poverty. Now, what does all this talk about tithing have to do with you and me? Why did Bruno make that lovely, awesome PowerPoint presentation for us today? According to research of all the people who attend church in America, okay, I'm not just talking about like our church, but just Christians in America, only around 5% of churchgoers tithe. 80% of those who are giving back to the church, they give back 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, the average was 3.3%, Dallas Willard talks about the process in which we change to become more like Jesus, how we engage in discipleship through something he calls VIM, V-I-M. It's an acronym for vision, intention, and means. This is really good, not just for like spiritual things in your life, but if there's a habit that you've been trying to work on, if there's like something, a positive change you've been wanting to make in your life, write this down, VIM, vision, intention, means. You first need a vision in your head, a different way to be. You can apply this to spiritual things, physical things, health habits, study habits, any kind of change. You need a vision in your mind, a compelling view of a different way you want to be. Secondly, you need to make an intention. A decision in your heart. I'm willing to do what it takes. I want to change and become more like fill in the blank. But you're not done yet because this is, those two things are usually where people stop. This is where so many of us get lost. We might have a vision of a different way to be. We might have the best and most beautiful of intentions. But then you walk out of the sanctuary on Saturday morning and you forget the decisions you made when you were sitting in the pews. Vim, v i m. M stands for means. You need the means to get that compelling vision from your head to your body. If you want to run a half marathon, you need to join CART and get one of our awesome runners to coach you, and you need to listen to the schedule they set up for you, and you need to run. Becoming someone who loves like Jesus, becoming someone who is generous like Jesus was, this doesn't just happen because you will it to happen. You need a regimen for that, too. You need to practice. How can I create space in my life where I can experience God's love and then practice sharing it with others? You need people who can hold you accountable, who you can practice with. When you look at how it all began, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that the world is created by God in an act of generous and creative and beautiful love. The, word, uh, the verb, gave, is repeatedly used. God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave plants, God gave water, God gave animals, God gave Eve. And the image of God in Genesis is of a generous, generous host and humanity is here as his honored guests. Even Jesus coming down to earth, for God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only son. We love because he first loved us. Our heavenly father first gave us love. And actually knowing this and actually allowing the experience of that into your day-to-day life, that's what's going to change things for you so that you think about money the way God thinks about money. There is a beautiful, beautiful film about a father who experiences trauma early in his life but overcomes his fears and anxieties to do anything and everything to be reunited with his son. This film is called Finding Nemo. And as you guys likely know, has anyone not watched Finding Nemo? Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so, Nemo, the son, just a little bit of a reminder, refresher Nemo is fishnapped, and he is taken to a dentist's office in Sydney, Australia. And his dad, Marlon, is doing his best to look for him, but Nemo, It's not just like swimming around in the ocean somewhere. He is stuck in a fish tank. And so Nemo's new tank friends devise a plan for them to all break free and get out into the ocean. But this plan is tricky. It's dangerous. It requires a lot from Nemo, who struggles already from having a weak fin. But they execute the plan, and Nemo swims to the bottom of the tank. He grabs a pebble, he swims up into the filter and he attempts to put the pebble into the fan so that the filter will malfunction and the dentist will have to remove them all to clean the tank. Okay, you guys know this. And Nemo's like, he's nervous, right? He's like a little baby and he's been very sheltered his whole life. And he's like, oh, like, uh, I don't know if I can do this. And he gets closer to the fan to like put the pebble in and you see the terror in his Big fish eyes, and he like tries, and then the filter like pfft, it, like spits it back back out at him, and then he's like, oh, and he's like whimpering, and he's like, I don't think I can do it. And then the other fish outside, especially Guild, he's like, no, you can do it, like do it again, right? And then Nemo's like, oh, and he's like, Ugh! and then it's like, pfft, like it didn't work. <sighs> okay, Nemo, try again. So he like. Uh, uh, and then it works. Okay, the fan has stopped. He's like, okay, (sighs) all right, I I think I did it. So he swims past the fan. He, like, goes up into that tube thing, and then he's like, I did it, I did it, and they're like, yay, and then as he's, like, about to come down, what happens? The pebble, like, and then the fan starts going again, and then he's like, ah, help, help, And then he's like, uh, he's like sliding back. And then all the fish in the tank are freaking out. So they grab like sea plant and then they shove it up the tube and they're like, grab on. And he's like, okay. And so he tries to grab on. He's like, uh, and then they're like, pull. And then he like loses it. And you're like, what? Is this how tuna is made? Like, oh, and then and then they try again, and then he grabs onto it, and then they pull him out, and then he's pulled out, and then they all embrace him, and he's like, <sighs> and the starfish is like, this is it. He's never going to do this again. And, and Gil's like, oh, it's over, and he like, goes into that skull to sulk. Okay? Wow, okay. A few scenes later, Nigel, the pelican, drops by the dentist's office and like Nigel apparently is like very into dentistry because um they're like oh Nigel you just missed an extraction and then Nigel's like ooh, has he loosened the periodontal ligament yet (laughs) like and then he's like oh what am I talking about Nemo where's Nemo like I have to talk to him and Nemo's like what what is it and then Nigel's like your dad's been fighting the entire ocean looking for you and Nemo's like my father really and Nigel's like oh yeah He's traveled hundreds of miles. He's been battling sharks and jellyfish and all sorts of. And then Nemo's like, Sharks? That can't be him. Nigel's like, oh, this Is this perfect timing? Sharks? That can't be my dad. Nigel's like, Are you sure? What was his name? Some sort of sport fish or something. Tuna, trout? Marlin? yeah, that's it, Marlin, the little clownfish from the reef. And Nemo's like, that's my dad. He took on a shark. Nigel's like, I heard he took on three. And then all the fish in the tank are like, three sharks? And then the puffer fish is like, that's got to be 4,800 teeth. Okay, 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 puffer fish. And then Nigel's like, you see, kid, After you were taken by Diver Dan over there, your dad followed the boat you were on like a maniac. And he was like, really? He's swimming, and he's swimming, and he's giving it all he's got. And then these three gigantic sharks capture him, and he blows them up, and then he dives thousands of feet, and he gets chased by a monster with huge teeth, and he ties this demon to a rock. And what does he get in return? He gets to battle entire jellyfish forests. And as Nigel is telling him all the various things that Marlin went through. Like, you see in Nemo's eyes, he's just like, my dad did... My dad's scared of leaving home. My dad did all of this for me? And Nigel continues, he's riding with a bunch of sea turtles on the East Australian Current, and the word is he's headed this way right now to Sydney. And as Nigel just... Nemo is just like in a trance almost. And then Gil's like, he was looking for you after all, shark bait. But then everyone's like, wait, where's Nemo? Because he's gone. Because something has shifted. And he's not going to be captive to his old thoughts anymore. He's not going to be captive to his fears because of who his dad is, because of what his dad has first done. And then he responds and he lives differently, more courageously. And he swims into the filter with this pebble in his fin and he jams it with this look of fierce determination. Like, I tried to get screenshots for you guys today, but Disney Plus would not allow it. Like, his face is completely different. He jams the filter He swims out and everyone celebrates. We first experience repeated acts of generosity from our father. God gave. He gave. He gave. He continues to give. And our challenge today, the practice that I am inviting you to make regular in your life is this. Number one, make space in your life to experience God's repeated generosity to you, right? So that, not, so that it's not just like, oh yeah, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's because I worked hard for it. Recognize his graciousness to you. Make time to recognize it and appreciate it. Number two, respond where the spirit engages you, right? Maybe that's through tithing for some of you, Maybe that's increasing your tithing beyond 10% for some of you. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I don't have income. (laughs) Maybe the Spirit is going to engage you by asking you to be generous in ways and areas that do not come naturally to you. Opening your eyes to areas of need around you. And practice this through vim, vision, intention, means. And the third is this. Don't just let it become a thing that you do. The reason we practice the things that Jesus asks us to do isn't so that we become good tithers and good Sabbath keepers. These are all a means to an end. And the end is that we become a people who loves like Jesus, who show the world who the Father is because of what the Father has first done for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you call us to be a generous people not because you need stuff from us but because you know, you had the wisdom long, long ago to know that when we engage in generosity, we experience joy. It brings us better health. It brings us better relationships. um, It decreases our stress. Father, may we look to you, experience and acknowledge your generosity so that we may share that with others. May we see your blessings to us as ways to bless our communities. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us.